This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. I had a skin condition, and at the end of 2014, I was actually diagnosed with cancer. I think I was able to 
to give them feedback. This, you're right, just like in racing, things that we were trying that they were sharing with other patients. Obviously, there's an extreme place for simulation in the sport, but also there's a place for people. Today, NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past. That's today we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace, and a track that truly does care about NASCAR history. Now, Steve, first off this episode, how was your week last week? Uh, I'm sure compared to yours, not much. <laughs> well, you know what I have experienced in the last week? Well, let's just say this. My week last week was as adventurous as anything I had ever experienced in my career. Now, ask me where I was. Okay, Rick, where were you? I can't tell you. Oh, <laughs> why'd you ask me? <laughs> ask me what I was doing. Okay, Rick, what were you doing? I can't tell you. This is time to get silly. <laughs> Okay. All right. One more, one more, one more. Ask me who I was with. All right, Rick. Who were you with? Todd Phillips was there. Our sound guy. Well, that's a big deal. Okay. Just one more. I promise. All right. Ask me when we will be able to talk about it. That one I can answer <laughs> next week, brother. Next week. All 6 right. 6 a.m. Monday morning. I am looking forward to it, and I dare say a lot of our listeners are, too. It's going to be awesome. Steve, this week in our first segment, we are going to conclude our three-episode arc with Gil Martin and his cancer story. And, Steve, I did not know that he had been experiencing anything like that. I did not either. Well, it's powerful because he went at it with the heart of a racer. If this doesn't work, try that. Over and over and over again. You know, Rick, I've had to deal with cancer, and that's a hard thing to do. It's very hard on your body. It's very hard on your mind, and it's very hard on your emotions. That kill went through this treatment over and over and over again and built equipment to help him in that treatment indicates to me that he really does have the heart of a racer and was a very determined man. My admiration for Joe Barton just went up 200%. In honor of that cancer story, as we have in the past with others in the NASCAR community who have dealt with such serious issues, we're not going to be doing a second segment. Considering everything that Gil has been through, I just don't see how we can laugh and cut up and everything. So we're not going to do the second segment. We're just going to leave it be. We're going to let this story stand for itself. Rick, that is the right thing to do. Listeners, if you possibly can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal. We need that support in order to be able to continue this podcast. And believe me, this week with Gil Martin's story and next week with what we have coming up and for the last four years, I think we have proved that we're a step ahead of the pack. So we need that support to be able to continue. So if you can, please support us. 
via patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. If you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. Venmo at the same vault podcast. And also Steve, just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American city business journals, owners of the same brand. You were serving as the manager of the Xfinity program when you were released mm-hmm. in April 2017. What happened? Well, at, towards the end of 2014, uh, I'd been dealing with something for a long time, and I really didn't know what it was. I had a skin condition, and at the end of 2014, I was actually diagnosed with cancer. And it was a... I did not know It was that. called CTCL, and it's called cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And it's a non-Hodgkin's kind of a skin disease. And it would always happen in the wintertime. And I'd been dealing, I started dealing with it probably when I was at Bill Davis Racing. I was walking down pit road in Dover and the back of my legs started burning tremendously. And I thought, man, I have got set in gas. I've done something. Yeah, I don't know yeah, what I've done. Yeah. And I went into the hauler and looked at the back of my legs and they were just bright red like somebody had burned me. And for... 14 years, 15 years, uh, uh, I didn't know what was wrong. Went to many different uh, skin doctors. I went to this doctor. Everybody, I mean, I I tell everybody all the time, I went from every kind of voodoo treatment to try to fix this, (laughs) that it was psoriasis, that it was uh, this and other, whether I need to use Dove soap, I need to pee on my feet. I mean, something (laughs) stupid. Yeah. You know, and I didn't know, so... It started getting much worse to where I started getting uh, different different uh, boils on my arm and different things, and I just did not know what it was. And mentally, that was taking a toll on me to where I wasn't I wasn't doing as much. The company was going in a different direction as far as trying to go more uh, simulation wise and everything else. Yeah. In which, yeah. not that I was totally against that because obviously there's its place for it, but that's I just was my mind was somewhere else after this diagnosis and so now when were you diagnosed officially was, with uh 17 i guess okay all right no maybe it wasn't then maybe it was it was before then i can't remember the okay. exact time right. no it wasn't 17 it was into 14 or 15 okay all right it's when i was officially diagnosed because okay. i actually went to a dermatologist in concord had another friend said man you need to go see him he's the best one in the world well i walked in and he looked at me and did some things. He actually thought that I had a, some form of leukemia. And he looked at it, and so he told uh, my wife and I that, uh, that I, he felt like I had some had cancer. But he wasn't 100% sure, and he wasn't going to say. So they did some biopsies. And so through the course of the next, uh, it came back that it was positive. And it was, you see it on TV, this roundup thing and all. It's that same form of that, but it's a... Uh, it's a much more rare version of it. Yeah. Like 1,200 people a year get it over the world. Wow. And I, that's what my doctor, I told my doctor, I said, I, get, I said, couldn't I have hit the lottery, been the rare one that got that? <laughs> but uh, through the course of doing many treatments with him and everything else, I was just, he was just like, you know, stress is a big component in this yeah. right here. So between that and just the direction that they were going there, and I just wasn't happy with that either, uh, I think we just agreed to part ways. 
And so it wasn't necessarily you were released. You well, I mean, mutual? I was released from okay. my position. Yes, yeah, I okay. was. Uh, but I think a lot of it okay. just had to do with uh, probably going back to thirteen of uh, okay. the way that we were racing then, and I I just could not see racing to where the people weren't in control. It was it was all being driven through simulation and everything else because. Obviously, there's an extreme place for simulation in the sport, but also there's a place for people. Yeah. And I think Stuart Haas has had a tremendous amount of success, along with Joe Gibbs, that they were able to find a way to incorporate uh, the people in the sport and engineering. Yeah. And they've been able to marry those together. So I just I couldn't get my head wrapped around it right then because my head was someplace else. Yeah. With yeah. this and. Uh, you know, I tried to I tried to tell a couple people there what was going on, and sometimes racing's more important than yeah. other things that are going on, and that's how, kind of how that was. So I decided, you know, I'm not even going to fight for this. Did you go through chemo, or what were your treatments? Well, like? because it, this is so rare, yeah, uh, of what I had or what I still have, yeah, uh, it's so rare that nobody knew much about it at all. So I was a guinea pig for a lot of things. So we went through several things whether it was uh, i remember in my arm a couple of times i had to go and lay on the table there and they shot me with shots in my arm uh probably over a hundred and i can remember looking up at the nurse and the nurse saying i've never seen anybody this tough and i said well i said they gave you a hundred shots oh yeah in my arm and all in what was going on just different type of treatments they were putting in it oh so we did that for a little while there was nothing really going on there so we went through light treatments which is basically a uh, tanning bed. Yeah. Instead of it laying horizontally, it stood up. Yeah. And so you go and stand in there. But basically, I won't get too graphic in it, but I, it was a full body thing for me. So basically, the doctor's like, well, you've got a couple things that you really don't want this ultraviolet light on. And so you handle it ever how you want to. So I used a pillowcase and... <laughs> Uh, on my head and a sock somewhere else so you had to get a full body that's, treatment so that's i know not funny that's not a visual not that you funny. really want to look at oh it was funny it was funny believe me i laughed wow. about it but uh there's a lot of things that yeah. that we tried because he was trying to get me to see a doctor at duke and she was actually out on a medical emergency herself her name is uh dr olson and so because I could, couldn't get to – she was the leading expert, or is the leading expert in CTCL in the country and in the world probably. She, she's on the leading edge of it, talking with anybody in the world about it and everything else. So uh, finally I went, had to go to Levine Cancer Center in Charlotte for a little while, and they didn't have any good answers of what to try. And so about a year later, and probably into 17 or 18, I got to start going to Duke and uh, got in their program there and was kind of a little bit of a guinea pig on that deal too. And so we tried some different things and it went back to different kind of creams and ointments and all of this stuff because it was a weird disease that in the wintertime it's worse when your skin dries out and all. But uh, she tried some different things with me. And it, again, it went back to some shots, and it was actually some stuff called interferon. I had to take them in my stomach three times a week, and I was having to do them to myself. My wife, she would be like, how are you doing this? So I was getting to where I was just doing it, done with it, and not thinking yeah. nothing about it. Well, after about a year of doing that, 
the side effects of it wasn't real good. I had started having headaches and stuff like that. And I was like, we got to do something. She goes, look, we've played with this long enough. I said, we want to try something different. We want to try radiation. So went to, went to there. We had to come. It was actually pretty cool because I got to be involved in some of the ways that we were going to do it because they weren't sure how they were going to do it because they, again, wanted to do full body radiation on me. So we came up with a way of actually using Lexan, just like we made our windshields with in a race car, laid it on the ground and made these casters to go on the bottom of the Lexan. And I would lay on that. We had to make this shield out of lead. I was used to working with lead and racing. So I had to make a lead box to go over my head. And you had to make this for yourself. I didn't make it for myself, but okay. we yeah. went through. They made it. Yeah. But we were like, I'm like, well, I, we use this, and this may wow. work. And so they got it. They actually put it together and did it. So I, for uh, she said, we can either do this easily, where you can drag it out over a course of time, two or three weeks, a month, two times a week, to come and do this, or we can hit it hard for yeah. every day for two weeks. I said, well, it's, you got to go to Raleigh. It's two hours from here. Let's, let's hit it hard. Let's do it. So for two weeks straight, we went up there, and uh, you just have to take all your clothes off, lay on this piece of Lexan on the ground, lay for like 45 seconds on your back, 45 on your stomach, and they'd turn that thing on, and hair on your legs and everything would stand straight up. Mm-hmm. I mean, Would it, it really? Oh, yeah. It would just be – it wouldn't hurt, but yeah. it was just like yeah. it's like being in a uh, magnetic field. And so we did that for a couple of weeks. And now, when was this? That was in uh, probably 18 to okay. 19, about okay. 19. And so we, we did that, quit all the shots and everything else, and just had some cream. Uh, the side effects from that were, they were pretty bad for a little while. Just the radiation was tough, just yeah. to, because it, it affects your joints. And yeah. because the first day when I came home, I came after, after two weeks. I came home. I was on the tractor out here working with the cows, moving hay. Yeah. Didn't think nothing about it. And the oncologist called me and said, how you feel? I said, feel great. No problems. He said, next couple of days, you're going to need to take it easy. He said, it's going to hit you. Yeah. Well, almost to clockwork, the next day, it wiped me out for like yeah. two or three days. I was on the couch. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, my wife took care of me 100% through the whole thing. And every day she drove me up there. It was my cheerleader. So that was good. Yeah. But it's a, it's it's been an experience. But the last I went for a, a checkup at the first of December, and she said you're all good. I don't need to see you for another year. So I mean, right now she said she said, it's not a disease that you will die from mostly, but you may die with. But it can be chronic. Yeah. And but for the last couple of years, hadn't had any issues with it. So I've tried to de-stress my stuff by messing with cows and chickens and helping an old farmer over here he's got 300 acres and 60 70 cows too so i've been helping him i've been learning a lot of new things made a serious mistake of letting him know i could work on tractors <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of where i've been doing it sounds like you approached all this like a racer you were going at it and seeing what worked and seeing what didn't and offering ideas exactly i mean you had to because the fact of they were Obviously, way smarter than I am, but some of the things that we were trying and some of the things that we were doing, um, I think I was able to give them feedback. Just, you're right, just like in racing, things that we were trying that they were sharing with other patients that were working with them, and obviously some of the stuff that they may be doing was working with me. So um, 
it was a, it was a it was a good bad experience because I yeah. learned a lot of things, and it, it teaches you uh, some situational things that uh, probably I I didn't take time to look at. And so, you know, I've sat back and I listen to all my friends that are still in racing and talk about it a lot. And I've got a good friend, PJ Bryant's got a shock company that he stays in touch with all the late model guys. And I've, I've, so I'm paying attention to what's going on still, but uh, from afar. Your son Ford is working in the sport now. What's it like watching him doing his thing in an industry that has been such a huge part of your life? What's it like watching him doing his thing? I tell you, it's a lot of fun because the fact of he was in the garage with me at Daytona when he was uh, three months old, four months old, yeah. and he's he never missed one. And he went to many, many races, and we'd get to the track, and I would never see him until <laughs> we get ready to go home. He knew what time the garage closed. And I'd ask him, where have you been today? What have you been doing? Well, I've been in the MRO truck. I've been in the MRN truck. I've been in, uh, I've been in, wow. the, in the booth upstairs. Yeah. I mean, he's been in NASCAR control. I said, how'd you get in there? He said, I just went. He figured his way out how to get through all of it, so he knew everybody, knew yeah. where to go. Yeah. And he was like one of the first ones, I think, ever to sit on the pit boxes week in, week out when he was there. Yeah. And because a lot of races, we'd get the call down before the race. I can hear John Darby on the radio right now because he, he called me Gilly. John would say, Gilly, get Ford off the box. <laughs> and so I'd have to get That's him. That's pretty there. good. Yeah. <laughs> so I, and I can hear it right now. So watching him go through that progression, knowing everybody in the garage and knowing the drivers, going to the drivers' meetings, uh, being on the pit box, I've got a picture in my office of him when we were at Martinsville. That's a great picture for me. It's when we were uh, with Clint with the direct TV car, and we're getting ready to come down pit road, and we hadn't even gotten on pit road good. And I'm I'm getting ready to hit the mic to tell everybody what we're going to do, and he's over the back of me with two fingers <laughs> up trying to tell me to take two tires. It's one of my favorite pictures. Wow. But uh, between doing that, he got to where he was doing some spotting for a little while. And uh, when he first started spotting, he was spotting for uh, actually for Dave Blaney, I believe, when he yeah. was running for Tommy Baldwin. And they were in Richmond, and he wasn't but 15 or 16. And right as the race was getting ready to start, again, Darby realized, what's Ford doing up there spotting for somebody at this age? And so yeah. they took him off the spotting stand and had to put somebody else in, coming to the green flag. So he didn't have a spotter for a couple of laps. He had to wait. I think he was 15. He made him wait till he was 16. So he got to do some spotting for several different people, some ARCA teams, some cup teams. Uh, he was with uh, William Byron when he won the championship. He spotted for him several okay. times when they had some events where they didn't have a spotter. So that was cool to get to watch him experience that and, sit and see some of those moments. But um, he got to do a lot of things with Tony Stewart on uh, the morning drive on Sirius. He got to do things with David Poole. David Poole actually got him on that. I'm sorry. Deal. Yeah, I, I am too. I am too. But David was a he was a good mentor for yeah, him yeah, on getting yeah. some things going yeah. on, and uh, that was that was fun to watch. So then he wanted to go to school to be a broadcaster. Uh, I tried every way I could to get him into racing portion of it, but then I tried to just let him do what he wanted to do. But he liked he liked the behind the scenes stuff. He liked watching what was going on. He liked uh, you know 
just the atmosphere of that. So he went to school for being a broadcaster. And through that course of school, they taught him about editing and everything, producing and everything else. So long story short, he's made his way into working at uh, Fox Sports. And he's a digital contact, uh, Kent, digital content director now for him, putting their clips and pieces on YouTube. Yeah. And I'm really proud of him for doing that right there because he's a, uh, He's kind of taking the bull by the horns, and he's he's the only guy. Everybody else is in L.A., and he probably is the only one from his division that works here in Charlotte. And so a lot of times after they finish doing Race Hub and everything else, there's nobody left in the building. He's there by himself. So he's a people person, so that doesn't really work real good <laughs> with him. But he but he's been able to do that. He's parlayed that into doing his Monday night racing thing that I've got here. It's, a, it's an iRacing deal he does on Monday night that uh, – I didn't really think much about it at first. I mean, but he would get me down and show. He's had a simulator for a long time. We built him one back in probably 2007. Uh, a couple of guys on the team, we built him one just for using on PlayStation. Well, it kind of moved into we're going into the iRacing where the simulation was working. And he goes, come on, Dad, help me with this some. So I started working with him a little bit. And it was amazing how it correlated into real racing because they've done such a tremendous job with iRacing as far as taking the technology of all the information from the wind tunnel or the chassis dynos, and they've been able to, to, to put all that together and just put it all together to where uh, the cars see the wind just like they do at Daytona. Uh, and it's gone into a deal now to where this Monday night racing has turned into Kyle Busch really likes being in it, and he's actually Rowdy Energy Drinks is the sponsor for him now on, on his Monday night racing. But Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s been in it, and he's had, he's had all – because of his contacts of being in the garage, I guess that's where I go back. Yeah. He's actually had these guests, uh, guest announcers on there of Daryl Waltrip and Adam Alexander and Larry McReynolds had Mario Andretti in there racing with him. Dale Jr.'s done with him, and I actually got to do a broadcast this year with Daryl on that deal, and we had a lot of fun. So uh, it's it's been fun watching him go through that and just the transition of it because – he took a different route in the sport than I have and that I did, yeah. and hopefully it'll turn out to be a, a good one for him. Last question. It's cool talking to you because you sound like you're content with your place in the sport and your legacy in the sport. Mm -hmm. Given the right circumstances, would you ever go back to the sport? Uh you know, you know, I've actually talking to somebody at a Trans Am team right now. Yeah. That to going and talking to them about just I'm just and I'm just thinking about it because I really am enjoying what I'm doing right now, spending time that I've never had in the last forty years and everything else. But the things about the sport or where it's going right now is, uh, I mean, obviously I hope the sport keeps going and grows and and you know gets back to the level where it was at. But the things that I enjoyed about the sport the most, the personalities, the uh, the cat and mouse game of it, uh, all of that stuff is kind of going to the wayside now. And that that part I would I don't know if I could handle that not being yeah, there yeah. because now with all of the technology that they have and everything by knowing what everybody else is doing and everything else, it takes a lot of the uh, to me a lot of the individualism out of the race yeah. because even though you may be able to simulate what's going to happen during a pit stop when you pit where you're going to come out 
how much gas somebody else is using, how much gas you're using, how much, you know, everything that's going on in the sport right now. Uh, I hate to see the part of the sport die to where when you wreck a race car on the track and you come on pit road and you not only fix it, but you fix it to you're an advantage. And yeah. that kind of stuff, because when you start losing the people that – that this sport that that built this sport that carried your Robert G's, I mean, there's nothing like watching a guy like him take a bumper, a chrome bumper off of a Nova, and narrow it eight inches, and you not be able to tell it. I mean, that goes way back. That shows my age there. But uh, whether the craftsmanship of the bodies, the twisted bodies, if you look on Facebook and all these yeah. groups all the time, it'll show some of the cars, especially through RCR. We did a lot. Uh, what those guys did in our shop they called them the banana cars they looked like they'd been wrecked when we showed up at the track yeah because that's a funny story too because richard was always trying to save money save money save money well so he would be right at the truck trying to get them to implement new rules whether it was the new templates or whatever else well he was trying to do things to get new templates to make them do and we were in the fab shop Doing trying that. to find ways to get around them immediately <laughs> And so that's that's when the twisted car really yeah. came about yeah. right there, when they were really looked like they were just like a banana going down the track. So that stuff I'll miss. Yeah. The driver aspect of it now, it's like right now what you're going to have if these guys aren't, aren't given a little bit of a open book, just some. If Kyle Larson shows up and he has a Corvette and everybody else doesn't have a Corvette, he's going to kill them. And you got to have – if all the cars are identical all the time and you don't have any room to, to do anything differently and everything's choreographed, yeah. the results are going to be too much the same for me yeah. because I, I always look at it in this scenario. Jeremy Mayfield outran Dale Earnhardt at Pocono because that 12 team came up with something that particular weekend that enabled Jeremy Mayfield's talent – to rival Dale Earnhardt's. It wasn't because he was so talented. It was just he was sitting in a better race car that weekend because that team was able to innovate something that nobody had at that moment. And I just hope that it doesn't change that away to where your guys that are mid-tier drivers can't outrun the top-tier guys because the team couldn't find an advantage because it is a team sport. So – that portion of it, I don't know if I could handle not being able to do some of that. I mean, obviously, I want to see the sport go on, and everybody says, oh, they're going to really crack down on the cheating and everything else. Well, they're going to crack down to where the stuff's not going to be very obvious, but don't let nobody kid you. There's going to be advantages found, gained, lost yeah. in this sport, and the teams that, that stay on top of that the most are the teams that are going to run the best. And it'll be one organization that doesn't just live on simulation. They're going to live on ingenuity because I've always said if they would have tried to go to the moon with that NASCAR garage area, we would have got there 15 years sooner <laughs> because the guys that are there yeah. are just that talented. Yeah. And it's a, it's, it's been a pleasure my whole career to the people that I've gotten to meet and uh, things that I've gotten to see and the, the creativity that has helped me in so many ways in my life. It's hurt me in a lot of ways. My wife will tell you it drives her crazy <laughs> on some of the stuff that I want to do and yeah. and how organization. I've tried to back off of that some because 
I get told by these guys right here all the time, man, we're building a cow barn. It's not down to the thousands. It's a quarter of an inch. <laughs> all right. Throw me a little bit of a bone. All right. You wouldn't tell me about the pole winning car, the Daytona 500 right. car. So what What Jeremy's car have? What, what you know, they, I don't know what they did that oh, weekend. I really don't. Man. But I mean, but there's all kinds of things through the progression of the. It was worth a shot. Oh yeah, it's worth a <laughs> shot because there's several things that have gone on in the sport in the oh, last yeah. Yeah. ten years with the skewing of the cars. Yeah. That everybody just from the outside looking in doesn't realize the ingenuity that's gone into it of how to try to make the rear end twist under those race cars. Yeah. Whether it just started with something as simple as softer rubber in the front of the truck arms or truck arms that would bend on one side and not bend on the other or floating rear end housings yeah. we had a floating rear end housing that we had under yeah. one of our bush cars up there where they would twist just like a dirt car wow that was amazing for a little while i think it was bud moore who said every week i go to the racetrack with 10 things on my race car yeah that I've done, that I've engineered, that I've figured out, pushed the envelope on. And I think he said if NASCAR finds three of them, then I'm still seven to the good. That's right. <laughs> and Chris Hussey, we talked to him, and he said that they would do things that were kind of obvious so you would catch that, but the things that they really cared about, they hid them a little bit so all the attention was, you know. Oh, exactly. I mean, one of the big things for Daytona forever is you'd show up down there with the rear bumper cover as sharp-edged as you could make it. It would cut you if you touched it. And immediately, the inspectors would be right on that. You'd see everybody over there rounding those edges off some. Well, in the meantime, you've got windows that'll fall down. You've got (laughs) air that's leaking through a package tray. You've got – there's so many things that are going on, and – I mean, there's no way they can catch it all. There's a two dozen officials there, and you've got 300 guys in there that are so talented, it's unbelievable yeah. that they're not only watching what they're doing, they're watching what other teams are doing. And most of the things that were caught, and unfortunately, uh, people would go and turn you in on things. And yeah. that, to me, that was just uh, that was totally off limits. You didn't go and throw somebody else under. If they showed up and they had something that they that was better than what you had, you went home and recreated it, made it better, did the same, but you didn't go to the truck and throw them under the bus. That was just to me that just that wasn't part of the game. That was just uh, you got to go home and work harder. They worked harder than you did that week. You got to go back and get your tell your guys. Okay, this is what we saw. Yeah. This is what they did to their car this week get the guys in the shop thinking about it, you know, and say, look here, we've rested on this thing that's worked good this week. It's not any good anymore. we got to take it to another level. Anything else you'd like to get across? Uh, I mean, just just things that I, that I think people are going to miss in this sport that, uh, that I'm so glad that I got to be a part of. I really wish that I'd been in there 10 years before I got to be in it just because of the fact of some of the real pioneers of the sport because there's so many things that have happened in this sport that now when people come in straight with an engineering degree, say, we're going to try this, try that, we'll say, we've tried that. Yeah. It didn't work. Yeah. It, doesn't make, it didn't make me smart because I said that, but it made the guys that came before me smart because yeah. we knew that they had done it, yeah. whether it was uh, whoever. They did it on Pearson's car, Petty's car, Yarborough's car, whatever. There's so many things that were done in this sport that – to be innovative that 
those gains really won't be found anymore through good old hard work. I mean, they'll they'll be found through uh, computer programs, things like that. They won't be found by trial and error. Yeah. And yeah, is that better? Yeah, of course it is. From a cost savings point, it probably is because there's no telling how many, well, hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. we just burned for no reason. Which, looking back, I wish we had a lot of that back. But <laughs> the yeah. the fun of oh, going yeah. through that was just yeah. uh, something that nobody. I mean, it's even down to picking tires. The tire guys will never know what it was like to show up at the racetrack, have to get into a tractor trailer where it's at Talladega, it's at Atlanta, it's 150 degrees in that tractor in that trailer. Some people just pick tires. I had a guy, Mike Alexander, that taught me. I had to go through and dig tires for him. I had to look for the name of the guy that built those tires because every week he wanted that same tire on his car because even though Goodyear takes such a bad rap all the time, it's a bad set of tires, we had this. You never hear about Goodyear when they did something, when the race went perfect. Yeah, You only hear if the tire blows or if they don't wear out fast enough. Well, if you're fortunate enough to ever go to Goodyear and watch those guys build tires, back then it was a process of you pulling the rubber over the tire, and maybe this guy is very, uh, you know, he, he really pays attention to what he's doing when he does the overlap on the tires and pulls them tight, or one guy pulls them loose. So they were built by hand? Yeah, they go up there. Those guys would build them. You know, really? there was a lot of hand work up there. It was amazing to me to go watch it. And actually, and I've and it's, it's escaping me right now, but I actually got to meet the guy like 15 years later that whose tires I would have to look for all over the southeast <laughs> in them trucks for Alexander. He was yeah. still building tires there. But not saying that one set was better or worse than the other, but I really do believe to this day that some of the individuals that were building the tires just had different techniques. Yeah. And you yeah. kind of got used to those techniques yeah. and went setting the car up because the tires, those tires may turn better. They may be whatever. They might not vibrate as much. Who knows? Yeah. The stagger may stay more consistent back when they were bi-supply tires. But uh, stuff like that, that's the things that I hate seeing going going away and doing shows like this. And especially somebody like we've mentioned Chris Hussey a couple of times. Uh, if, if anybody doesn't follow him, they should, because the <laughs> yeah. pictures he puts online, yeah. Yeah. I don't know where he gets them all, yeah. but his knowledge of the sport and the things he puts on, he's trying to keep it alive. I mean, obviously he's at Petty Enterprises up there being family, but, uh, the stuff he puts on, he's not letting the sport die. And that's what I hate to see. I don't want to see the legacy of this sport die because there's so much that, Heck, I mean, I loved about it. Still love. Hey, man, I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. I know. That's why That's why when you said do this, I wanted to do it because awesome. you were talking about digitizing all the series of these, yeah. these magazines. I think it's an awesome thing because yeah. anybody that wants to be a historian, anybody that wants to be a student of this sport yeah. needs to read those magazines because that was, like I told you earlier, that was a highlight of the weekend when the Winston Cup scene came and hit the back of the truck. Instead of everybody standing around looking at their phone, everybody was looking at that magazine. (laughs) And that was our lifeline to what was going on. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. Gil Martin 
first noticed something feeling like it was burning on the back of his legs several years before his actual diagnosis. He was on pit road at Dover. He thought that he had sat down in gas and Steve, the skin on the back of his legs was so red. It looked like he had a really bad sunburn. Very, very peculiar. I know they had to worry Gil, a lot. That's a, that's a very scary situation to see. Here's the thing about that. He said for 14 or 15 years, years, Steve, not days, yeah. not months, 14, 15 years, he would go to every doctor that he could find to figure out what was going on because it wasn't going away. 14 to 15 years, years. Gil put up with this situation yeah. and he couldn't get an answer. Now, Rick, I can tell you one thing. Seeing my legs like that would certainly scare me. But if I had gone to doctors all those years and they couldn't tell me what it was, that is even more frightening. Well, I don't know. I've seen your legs and they scare the crap out of me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I won't comment on your no, physique there, Rick. No, no, wait a second. Wait a second. What did I just say about not laughing and cutting up? <laughs> <laughs> you started it. <laughs> yeah, I started it. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll go back to my quarter now. Steve, as the situation progressed and there were no answers coming his way, you could just imagine how that impacted his emotions and his day-to-day -day life. Stress is a big factor in making basically any situation worse. And to top it off, he wasn't exactly on board with the direction that Richard Childress racing was taking at the time. I think he wanted to stay a little more in the old school camp and they wanted to get into a lot more modern stuff and uh, with technology and Steve, he eventually parted ways with the team. And he said that he couldn't really focus on what was taking place at RCR because his head and his heart were someplace else. He did not place the blame entirely on RCR. He fully admitted that what he was enduring and going through had a large part to play with. As well, as well as should, Rick. I mean, this is a very stressful situation for anybody, and it's hard to do your ultimate best when you're dealing with a problem like that. To be absolutely fair, Gil does recognize the importance of engineering and simulation in the sport, but at the very same time, he and I, and I'm pretty sure you would agree on this as well. He also said that it is absolutely critical to also include the people factor. Now, let's face it, Rick, there's no way in NASCAR today and in the future is going to lose its computer-based technology, for example, and engineers at the relatively new to the sport compared to other types of employees that teams have. But Gil is right about one thing. You can't just let numbers, figures, direct what you're doing in the sport. You have to have the human element. You have to have the creativity of the members of your team. I think that's true in any business, Rick. Here's how we would put it in Yakin County. Engineering and simulation, they're all well and good. But there's also something to be said for a good old-fashioned seat-of-the-pants feel. Amen. For a race car. I agree. I agree. At the end of 2014, which was about eight years ago now, Gil was finally diagnosed with CTCL, 
cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And according to the Mayo Clinic, CTCL is a rare type of cancer in which white blood cells called T-cells develop abnormalities that make them attack the skin. CTCL can cause rash-like skin redness, slightly raised or scaly round patches on the skin, and sometimes skin tumors. Because CTCL is so rare, according to Gill, only about 2,000 people around the world are diagnosed with it every year. He was tested and prodded and stuck basically every way that you could be. Well, there was no foundation, not much of any types of groundwork for them to work on when it came to this particular cancer. That's why Gill underwent so many different treatments to find the cure. One time he was on a table getting 100 shots. Just saying that makes me want to cry because I can't hardly stand one shot. When I go to the doctor and they want to draw blood, I look at the lab tech and I say, okay, you have one shot, maybe two, (laughs) (laughs) because you ain't getting to strike three. Uh -uh. No. (laughs) And Gil was sitting there getting 100 shots and the nurse looks at him and tells him that she had never met anybody so tough. I can tell you right now, Gil is much tougher than me. I would not have survived 100 shots, not because of the shots, because I'd have been scared of death before they ever took the first one. I have never been in that situation, but I guess what Gil was going through, if it takes 100 shots to figure out what this is and to figure out a way to maybe start treating it and getting better, then yeah, I could maybe see getting the, well, I could absolutely see getting the hundred shots, but I can guarantee you this. I would not like it at all. Well, Rick Gill had to be tough. Look at it this way. Either he had to take the shots and the other treatments to survive, or he could have just refused everything. And what would the alternative be if he did that? When you got a choice like that, you take the hard road. Then they tried full body light treatments. And there were a few things that didn't need to be zapped during that process. I'll just leave that up to the imagination (laughs) and I'll leave how they handled that up to the imagination. (laughs) Yeah. Let's do that. I'm already in pain over here. And as I mentioned in the intro, here's how experimental everything was. Gil actually helped design the contraption that they used during those treatments. He didn't actually build it. But he was able to suggest Lexan here, a box there. That's crazy, man. But the knowledge that Gil accrued in all his time of racing, man, it certainly paid off here, I believe. I wonder if the doctors gave him the same kind of flack that Kevin Harvick did. Sorry. No, 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 no. (laughs) Kathleen McDonald gave me a pass last week. I don't know if she'd give me a pass on that one. I'd shut up if I was you. Sir, absolutely. Sorry about that, Kathleen. Promise not to do it again until next time. Finally, last December, he was told by doctors that he was good to go, that they didn't need to see him for another year. Now, I don't know that that means that he is cancer free, but he said that the doctors told him that he didn't need to be seen for a year. And I can tell you from firsthand experience with my wife, who's had thyroid cancer a couple of times. The words cancer-free are unlike any other that you can possibly hear after you've had 
cancer. I know the feeling well, Rick. When I was pronounced cancer-free by the doctor, he looked at me and he said, now, I want you to go. Just go. Don't check out. Don't check back with me. Go. And good luck. He said he's trying to de-stress by helping a friend with 300 acres of land with cattle and chickens. And Steve, I don't know. I'm not a farmer. I've never been on a ranch. I've never worked on a ranch, but I don't know how you de-stress by going to work on a farm. That sounds far too much like real work. Well, real work is what it is. If you're doing real work, like you do at a farm, which you have to do, you know, all day, you haven't got time to think about being stressful. You just have to go to work and get it done. And then it was announced just last week that he had signed on to serve as director of competition for silver hair racing, which fields teams in the trans am series for, for drivers, Connor Zilich and Maurice Hall. And he did mention it and he did mention some of the hesitations in taking a gig like that, but you and I both know the allure of the racetrack, pretty powerful drug. Absolutely. And I think Gil has done a great thing for himself. By taking this job, I hope everything goes well. There's no extra stress involved, and they have success. Best of all, Gil gets to watch his son Ford make his mark on the sport as a spotter and broadcaster and with the pretty elite Monday Night iRacing series that he founded. Steve, there's an idea. In order for me to get some seat time, the Monday Night Racing iRacing series... I wonder if they have a pace car. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if I could drive an iRacing pace car. Get your I-racing. head out of your hands. It's not that bad. <laughs> iRacing, please, please. Shut him up. Put him in the pace car. Hello, everybody. This is Ronnie Thomas. Hello, I'm Buddy Parrott. I'm Kyle Petty. Hey, race fans, this is Johnny Benson. Hey, I'm John Dodson, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. And Steve, I just wanted to end this episode with just one more teaser. And here it is. Do not miss our show next week. I don't care if you don't care about NASCAR history one way or the other, but if you just want to hear a glorious white knuckled place, <laughs> sorry about that. 
That's the other show. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> if you want to hear a story that's going to leave your jaw on the floor, do not miss next week's show. There, I said it, and we will just leave it at that. And listeners, he speaks the truth. Hey, tell Margaret to hold it down. <laughs> you tell her. I dare you. <laughs> I double dog dare you. <laughs> Rick says hold it down. He's just kidding. He's just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>